once again this bright Easter morning that you live. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, uh, this was when, uh, when Chloe was still a baby, my wife and I had taken a brief vacation down to the coast, to the Sunshine Coast along uh, the, uh, the coast of Oregon there, and uh, we were visiting in a number of different places and spending time with family, and at one point in time, uh, I ducked out into a used bookshop to do some, some shopping for you know, cheap, inexpensive books. That's what a Texan will do. He'll go to the place where you can find lots of stuff for relatively cheap, and so that's what Texans do. So I was in the bookshop looking, and I came across two volumes which struck my fancy. One was on uh, existentialism and human nature by the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, and then the other book was a history, a history of Baptist work in British Columbia and the Yukon. And uh, I found both of these books on a bookshelf there in, in Oregon, and I thought, I am going to buy both of these books. And so I went to the book counter, and I put both of them down, and they are both for pennies on the dollar, uh, probably about 50 cents for the Baptist work, and probably about $1.50 for the existentialist work. And I handed it, and the lady at the bookstore, she took the books, and she was ringing them into the cash register, and she noticed Sartre's philosophy, the existentialism book, and she said, oh... This book is so, so good. This is a good book. And I said, really? And she said, yes. She said, I read this book when I was in university. And uh, she looked like she was maybe just out of university. And she said, it really, really inspired me. And I said, really? And she said, yes. And I said, Are you, would you consider yourself an existentialist? And she said, absolutely, I would, actually. Now, for those of you who don't know, an existentialist is an individual who believes that existence precedes meaning. Now, for those of us who are here who are Christians, who find our truth in Christ, we understand that meaning starts with God. He is the ultimate reality, and that from Him, all of life, all the universe, all that is, flows Meaning in God precedes our existence. But for an existentialist, life has no meaning except that meaning which you give to it. And you will interpret life on the basis of your own views and your own ideas. Therefore, your existence, your personhood as you are, that comes first and out of your own experiences, your family upbringing, uh, different ideas that you have. From those things, you will assign to life the meaning that you think it ought to have that you want to take from it. And so this lady says to me, I very much so do consider myself an existentialist. And of course, I could not resist. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes up and gives you a little poke and uh, you know you have to say something. So I posed the question to her for the principal author of existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher. I said, how did that work out for Sartre? Being a university student who obviously had taken courses in philosophy, she knew that it didn't work out very well. Jean-Paul Sartre was struck suddenly ill, and on his deathbed, He was asked the question, well, what if you could go on another 10 years? And he said, to be honest with you, I don't think I could bear another 10 years of existence. Sartre was confronted with the problem that every philosopher encounters at some point in time or another. The problem that Solomon identified and referred to in the book of Ecclesiastes as vanity 
trying to understand what the real meaning and the real purpose of life is. Of course, philosophers can't use that term vanity because it's entirely too biblical and they're trying to keep God out of the equation, hence they're philosophers. And so they invented their own term, the term of absurdity. Now, life can mean whatever you want it to mean. You can tell yourself that. You can deceive yourself into thinking that life is what you make of it. If you have decided that life is there for you to enjoy it, get all you can, spend all you can, have as much fun as possible, live life to the most, if you think that the purpose of life, that the ultimate meaning of life is nothing but pleasure, then you are going to confront sooner or later what every philosopher has had to confront, this problem of absurdity or, as Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, this problem of vanity. Sooner or later, something tragic will happen. You are living life. Things are going great. You are getting pleasure out of the way you are choosing to exist. And sooner or later, something tragic will happen, such as you inadvertently, while fiddling with the radio on your dashboard, ran over that precious 10-year-old girl that you didn't see. Sooner or later, that wife that you love, that you've been married to for 40 years, who brings you so much joy, will be struck with cancer. Sooner or later, all of us come to that moment where we know we are going to die. Which means that meaning, this idea that we can make life mean whatever we want it to mean, for all of us, to use the philosopher's term, if that's how we approach life, sooner or later we are all going to come face to face with the absurd. Or, as Solomon said over 3,000 years ago now, we're all going to come face to face with the fact that everything done under the sun, apart from Christ, is vanity. Now, as Christians, we need to stop for a moment and reflect. If you're here today and you have lived life for yourself, apart from Christ, this message is for you. If you are here today and you are living life with Christ, this message is still for you as well. Regardless of who you are and what your beliefs are, as you gather together here this morning, we all make the mistake sometimes of approaching life by trying to force our own meaning upon it rather than turning to God and seeking His meaning. Christians are just as guilty of this as unbelievers. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke, Aileen did such a wonderful job reading that passage. You find two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One's name is Cleopas. We don't know what the other one's name was. They had just lived through some of the most amazing, most powerful and miraculous times that were ever known, that have ever been known in Palestine. They had witnessed some of the most profound healings, some of the most miraculous achievements. They had seen people raised from the dead. They had seen the masses fed. They had seen demons cast out. They had seen diseases healed. They had seen it all. They had seen all that you could possibly see in order to ascribe to anyone the potential title of deity, they'd seen it in Jesus Christ. And after what was the most exciting week of conflict and controversy in which Christ came face to face with the religious establishment of his day, confronting them, challenging them, rebuking them, tragically, he was executed. 
There was a bit of fanfare and to-do, for sure. But everything we had thought we believed to be true about this man now is called into question because he is dead. On Sunday, mid-morning to afternoon perhaps, we're not exactly sure, these two disciples needed to journey to Emmaus. And so they left and they were on their way talking about all of these events. And a stranger approached them. Undoubtedly, he was also traveling from Jerusalem on his way to Emmaus, and he overtook him on the road. He listens for a moment about their conversation, their dialogue, and then he asks the question, what is this that you guys are talking about? And their response is one of incredulity. Hey, Jerusalem's a big city, but how did this escape your attention, buddy? We're talking about the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on Friday. Look with me. Verse 18 Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these last days? Imagine if he knew it was Jesus he was talking to. Hey, buddy, are you stupid? Get a clue. Jesus responds, and they don't know that it's Jesus. What things? This is the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. He knows what things. He knows what things they're talking about. He's drawing them out. Look at what they say now. Look carefully. They answered him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and they crucified him. Look at verse 21. This is their meaning that they're forcing on the situation. Look carefully. This is their existentialism coming out into their Christianity. Verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that this Jesus of Nazareth could save us. For those of you who are here who are Christians, we've lived our whole lives having this truth explained to us. We've lived our whole lives every Easter having this idea pounded into us over and over and over again. You might think it's easy for us, but of course these guys were swept up and caught up in the confusion and the excitement of the days, and perhaps all of these details just went over their head, except for one slight fact that defies that notion. Jesus on multiple occasions made it clear that he was to be crucified and on the third day rise. He had said it over and over and over again. And despite him saying to them, this is what is going to happen, when it happened, exactly as he said, they said, oh man, all hope is lost. We thought he was the king of the world. We thought he was God. We thought he was going to save us. It's all unfolding exactly according to plan. Not a hidden plan. Not a mysteriously well-kept, well-guarded secret. He has said to them, this is what's going to happen. It happened. And they say, oh, all hope is lost. We, we had hoped. We had thought. We, we, were, we were expecting that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. The only way you make that response, the only way you say that, 
is if in multiple conversations prior, when Jesus has said, this is what's going to happen, this is what needs to take place, you hear him, but you do not listen to him. You are capable of hearing his words, but yet you are not capable of interpreting them or fitting them into your view of the world. Instead, it doesn't fit with your worldview, so you discount or you dismiss or you flat out just don't listen. But the problem is always with us hearing. It's never with Jesus explaining. In the midst of all of this, plan is unfolding perfectly. There he is, Jesus in the flesh, talking to them. We had hoped he would save Israel. Now, what is their idea? What is their meaning, if you will? To borrow a phrase from Sartre, what is their greatest truth? What value do they assign to life? What are they looking for from the scriptures? What are they looking for from the Messiah? Well, we know clearly from Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's having one last powwow with his disciples. And the question is asked, Jesus, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And of course, Christ's response is, it's not for you to know things that have been established according to the Father's will that will happen in his time according to his direction. The fact that they pose the question shows you what it is that they're looking for. They're looking for a geopolitical nation to rise from the ashes. They're looking for the Messiah to be a conquering king who is going to expel the Roman soldiers, who's going to kick out Pontius Pilate and all the Roman authorities, and Israel is to be raised up as a world superpower under the leadership of the Messiah. That's their meaning. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me, and after three days, I'm going to rise. They're thinking, yeah, that's just the weird things that he says sometimes, but really, he's our general. Really, Jesus is going to boot out the Romans. He's going to restore Israel to glory and national, international preeminence. And we're going to usher in a utopian dynasty. It's going to be great. So even though he'd been clear, they didn't listen. And so now they're on the road to Emmaus, talking to the Son of God, not even aware that they just told Jesus, hey, don't be an idiot. The irony of the moment should not be lost on us. It's easy for us to look at these guys, Cleopas and his companion, and say, you guys, you're telling the Son of God he's an idiot. Maybe pull back on that a little bit. I love that exclamation point there. That was fantastic. (laughs) So it says, as they're walking along, They make the statement, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Verse 22, moreover, some woman of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Hello, there's eyewitness testimony. People have gone to the tomb. He's not there. There were angels that said, no, he's alive. What did they say? He has risen just as he said he would. Jesus is fulfilling his plan. And if you can't take Jesus' word for it, he has sent angels to speak to some women who go to the tomb looking to further prepare and dress his body as a result of his burial to decorate the tomb a little bit. And it's there that they encounter these angels and say, no, like he's just doing what he said. So Cleopas and his traveling companion have the women. But if you look back in verse, chapter 24, verse 11, this is the account of when they went and told the disciples what they had seen. The disciples' response, verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not 
believe then. There's a theme that is running through this road. There's an idea that accompanies us, all of us, as we're making our way through this life. We are strangely similar to the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. We are, all of us, prone to forcing our own meaning on the Word of God. Now, what does Christ do when he encounters these individuals who, despite repeated testimony from himself and an angelic vision to boot, what is his response? Verse 25. They called him an idiot, and look at what he says to them. Foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What is the chief indictment? Does Jesus say, hey guys, look, it's me. It's Jesus. Hello, I told you this. He could have, and he will reveal himself to them in a moment. But the problem isn't from Christ's perspective that they didn't listen to him or that they didn't listen to the angels. The problem is they didn't listen to the scriptures. And he's going to rectify that situation. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is the Lord's solution to their unbelief. Where did he start? What passage of scripture did he talk about? We don't know. It says he started with Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. If you've been going to the Old Testament tenant talk with Dr. Marlowe, undoubtedly you've been made aware of this over and over and over again. Aside from the JDP theory or whatever, you know, we know Moses wrote the five books, the first five books of the Bible. So when it says he started with Moses, does that mean that he started with the law or did he start with maybe going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the proto-gospel, in which God promises to Adam and Eve the seed of woman, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head? That's the very first indication that there will be an ultimate salvation. Maybe he fast-forwarded and he started with Exodus chapter 12, Moses leading the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, in which in Exodus chapter 12, Moses gives directions on a Passover lamb that has to be brought into the home for four days and then slaughtered, conveying this idea that deliverance is possible, but it does not come without a cost. Maybe he went to David Maybe he talked about the promise made to David where he says to David, you shall not lack for a descendant to always sit on the throne. Maybe he went to any number of prophets, Isaiah, by his stripes, we are healed. Maybe any of the minor prophets in the coming day of the Lord has talked about over and over and over again. Who knows where he went? This journey to Emmaus is about an 11-kilometer walk. On average, it takes about five hours. We don't know at exactly what point in time Jesus caught up to them, but he had five hours to drill it in, and in the course of five hours, he probably just hit on the high points. Nonetheless, over and over again, he is hammering home this idea that the Scriptures have clearly laid it out from the moment that pen was put to paper and that God spoke through a human author and committed words to paper and put forth his holy Scriptures The problem for us 
is that we don't listen to what God says. It starts here. Now they get to Emmaus. It's evening time. They've just had a crash course in Christianity 101 from the second person of the Trinity, unbeknownst to them. It's late. It's time for the evening meal. It's time to call it a day, wash your feet, and get a place, get a room to stay for the night. This strange traveler on the road makes like he's going to keep going. And they say, don't go. Stay with us. It's late. Let's get a bite to eat. And Jesus says, okay. And he knows that they're going to ask him to stay, but he still pretends to go. Having had a five-hour conversation about the scriptures, talking about what the meaning of the crucifixion is, Jesus is wanting to know if they've grown weary of talking to him about him. He doesn't need to keep overwhelming them with information. He doesn't need to keep pouring that fire hydrant out on them of all this good stuff that is there in the Bible. But as soon as they ask, he says, okay, I will. I'll stay with you. In a few verses, they're going to say, did not our hearts burn within us? as we walked on the road to Emmaus. As Jesus is unfolding the scriptures, something is happening inside of them spiritually, something transformative, something life-altering. They sit down to dinner, and it makes the statement in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. I cannot tell you how many different scholars I've read commenting on this verse over the past several weeks that said it was his mannerism. This is the same Jesus who took bread, who blessed it, who broke it on the night that he was to be betrayed as he's offering forth the Lord's Supper for the first time. They recognized his mannerisms. No. Other scholars have said, well, it was the way he prayed. There was an intimacy in his prayer as he's speaking to the Father. The prayer was so beautiful, they realized in that moment that it was Jesus speaking to God. That's when they knew it was Jesus. No. No. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think that as they saw him breaking the bread, as they heard him offering forth the prayer, they undoubtedly would have sensed some emotion, some, some experience of deja vu. But if you look back with me at the very beginning of the passage, verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Eyes is the subject of the sentence. Kept is in the passive, which means that their eyes were restrained from seeing. Their eyes, though they are created to see, though their natural function is for perception, they were blinded by God the Father on high. 
It doesn't matter how intimate the prayer. It doesn't matter how familiar the expression of him breaking bread. It doesn't matter his mannerisms. It doesn't matter even the gait of his walk. The guy was with them all day, and they didn't recognize it as Jesus. So it wasn't as though he's sitting there walking along, talking to them. They're like, man, that voice sounds like somebody. Who was that? I, you know, They're not having this weird moment where it's like, oh, that's who you are, Jesus. This is the guy they've been talking about. This is the one that they were grieving over. This is the one they had hoped would be the Savior of Israel. They didn't just not notice Jesus. It wasn't just the intimacy of his prayer, the breaking of bread. God the Father in heaven did not open their eyes. They were supernaturally kept from seeing him. It didn't matter how familiar his expressions were or how quaint his mannerisms. They could not see him with their eyes until they first believed in him with their heart. Hear me, First Baptist Church. You cannot see without believing. And the scripture says, very clearly, that the righteous shall live by faith. When these guys are grieving, and they loved Jesus, when they are grieving his death, and they're saying, all our hopes are crushed, all our, excuse me, all of our expectations for our nation have been dashed in his death, Jesus very easily could have comforted them and said, ta-da, take a second look, fellas. The most important thing in that moment for these disciples of Jesus is not that they would see him with their eyes, but that they would believe with their heart. And that is the most important thing for you and me. We are today removed from these events by 2,000 years. But the historicity of the resurrection is undeniable. Dawkins, famous atheist, wrote a book a few years back called The God Delusion. If you've ever tried to read Jean-Paul Sartre or Dawkins or any of these guys, you find it's extremely tiresome. What do I mean by that? They're very, very smart. They're very, very well-spoken. But they're very, very selective. They only want to look at what they want to look at. And when they take you along with them for their journey down the rabbit hole, they make sure to be the tour guides that show you the sights and the sounds that they want you to see. In Dawkins' book, he talks about the fact that God is a delusion, and he wants to lift us all up into the clouds. He wants to look at the cosmos and the universe and the movement of the stars and the planets. He wants to get into high-minded scientific theories. He wants to talk about the Big Bang, and he wants to talk about all of these things, which if you read him carefully and if you're able to consult other scientists you're also a little bit suspicious that he is taking a slanted view to, towards some of these, these elements, these data points that he's referring to. But the question becomes, why do we have to spend all our time up in the stars looking at the universe and the expansion of multiple galaxies, trillions upon trillions of celestial bodies? Why can't we just stop and talk about the fact that there's a guy who died and rose from the grave and we don't know where his body is to this day because he really did rise from the grave? It's a great question. It's the most fundamental question that any of us should ask. It's a question which no atheist can really ignore. And Dawkins in his book answers the question. Do you know what Dawkins says in his book? Regarding the person of Jesus, it is extremely unlikely that he rose from the dead. Period. 
End of sentence. Moving on. Over 500 witnesses observed him coming back from the dead, two of which are these fellows here on the road to Emmaus. The disciples were so struck by the fact that he had risen from the dead that these guys who the morning of his crucifixion ran like, 12, like 11 scared little girls and hid in 11 separate hiding places, having confronted the truth of Jesus, stood up and not 50 days later went before the same religious leaders who executed him and they said to them, stop preaching Jesus, you're trying to bring his blood on our heads. Newsflash, you murdered the guy, but anyway, you're trying to bring his blood on our heads. And the disciples said, whether or not it's right to obey you, men, or God, you decide. But we cannot help but preach what we have seen and heard. The Apostle John in 1 John says, I declare to you that which I have seen and heard and touched. Jesus lives. It is of all the facts of ancient to mid-late history, the most established. Regarding all of the eyewitness testimony, regarding all of the different manuscripts, both biblical and extra-biblical, regarding all of the data, it is overwhelmingly comprehensive. We know that Jesus rose from the dead better than we know that Virgil wrote the, home, wrote the Iliad or the Odyssey. We know that. Homer, sorry. <laughs> See, I'm not even too sure who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. That's how, that's how confusing it is. As soon as I said it, I was like, nope, that's not what my manuscript says. But anyway, apologize for that. We know that Jesus rose from the dead better than we know many of the other facts of history. But none of that really matters, church. What matters is what does God say in his word? And will we meet him first here in the things that he speaks to us? These guys on their way to Emmaus, any number of different ways that our sovereign Lord could have addressed the situation. But the most important thing, the highest priority, was that they need to be humbled of constantly trying to force their own meaning on their own circumstances. They needed to be broken of that. And they needed to meet God in His Word and to believe everything that God has said. Look at what Jesus says to them. In verse 25, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That three-letter word, all. Three letters in the Greek, three letters in the English. All in the English, pos in the Greek. If we pick and choose one text over the other, if we only want to read this particular book of the Bible and ignore all the rest, we will be faced with numerous problems trying to understand the circumstances of our life, trying to fill those gaps with our own meaning. If we do not hear all that God says to us in his word, sooner or later we will come up against absurdity 
Or as Solomon says, we will face vanity. But praise God that the philosopher of Christianity, the great teacher of our faith, unlike Sartre, it worked out for him. His life had purpose, it had value, it had meaning. He faced death, seeing beyond the grave a beauty and a goal that surpassed and transcended this life. For those of us who do not come to Christ looking for that meaning, despite however else you might approach this life, it is still vanity. It is still absurdity. And so my prayer for you is that you would come to Christ, that you would surrender to him in faith. You would know that the crucifixion was the ransom of your redemption and that the resurrection was the proof of your inheritance of glory. In 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. He was a president that many say was cut down too early, cut down in the prime of his life. He was beloved by many. One of the, one of the you know, in terms of the approval ratings that they do, one of the most approved and popular of all presidents that has ever held the office. He was brutally and cruelly assassinated in Texas. When they laid him to rest at Arlington National Cemetery, the decision was made, we have to do something in order to carry on his name and his legacy. There has to be something that is done that will remind us that what he started, we can never forget. And this idea of anointing his tomb with the eternal flame was born. Even though it was prohibited against Arlington National Cemetery rules and regulations that no soldier or no officer of the American military should have special decorations conferred upon their grave, that they are all equal in giving the ultimate sacrifice for their country, the exception was made for Kennedy, we must do this. It will be an eternal, enduring flame that will never go out. It will burn from now until the end of time. Fun trivia question. Anybody here know how many times that eternal and enduring flame has gone out? At least four times that we know of. The Army Corps of Engineers tested it against all manner of different things. They subjected it to high winds. They tried pouring water on it. They, uh, they shook it in case of earthquake. They, they did all manner of testing to try and foolproof this eternal flame. On one occasion it ran out of Propane. <laughs> kind of hard to foolproof against that. <laughs> on another occasion, a group of Catholic schoolgirls on a high school field trip went to the grave and wanted to anoint it with holy water. And they all poured out their holy water at the same time and managed to douse it. There have been other occasions. I won't get into all of them now. Those are the four that we are aware of because they've been willing to acknowledge publicly that those happened. Most recently, some construction work was necessary. 2013, they had to do a little bit of a renovation. There was some erosion in the soil. They needed to do some work. The tombstone was starting to crack. They had to turn off the eternal enduring flame in order to fix it. And they did. And do you know who was appointed the task of restarting it? 
the deputy secretary of the army. President Kennedy, the man who was cut down in the prime of his life, who was taken from us too soon, who started a work which we are all called upon to continue and perpetuate forever. Here we are, not 50 years later, and when a little bit of work needs to be done to his tombstone, he doesn't even rate a secretary of the army or a secretary of defense. He doesn't even rate a vice president. He gets a deputy secretary. And the proceedings are only recorded in the back page of the Washington Times. So much for carrying on the legacy of a dead president. There is no tomb for Jesus. And there is no need for us to make sure that a torch stays lit. Because Christ himself reigns from on high. And he is himself the eternal and enduring flame. If you are here today and you are finding meaning in your life in anything else, you're making a grave mistake. Find your hope in Jesus and nothing else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Lord, for rising from the dead, conquering death, defeating the powers of darkness and freeing us forever from sin and slavery to all the forces of evil. Lord, help us to trust in you. Thank you for this victory and we look, Lord, on this Easter morning towards that day in which we know you are coming again in power and glory for the final victory. And with the Apostle John, we say, Lord, come quickly, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.